to the 95th Psalm. Would you uh, stand with me? And we're going to read these, th- this Psalm, 11 verses only. Uh, we'll read this Psalm, then we'll go ahead and get into the teaching. It's a beautiful, wonderful Psalm on worship. It's a call to worship our God. Psalm 95, verse 1, I'm reading out of the New King James Version of God's Word. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry ground, the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in, the, as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts as we look at this psalm. I pray, Lord, that you would have your way in us, that you would speak to our hearts. And Lord, that our hearts would be moved as as your spirit is with us and and, and teaches us and gives us understanding of these things. Lord, pour him out upon us that, that he'll do that. We have no hope of understanding, no, no hope of, of uh, um, comprehending these things apart from him helping us. So God, might he speak to our hearts, we pray, and might you be glorified, might you be honored, might you be worshipped in this place tonight, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You guys may be seated. Psalm 95 tonight, uh, as I shared uh, a moment ago, it's a beautiful psalm uh, calling us to worship our God. As we look at this psalm, and and, uh, it it is the case with uh, the the psalms that we see in book 4, which are Psalms 90 through 106, the the smallest of the five books of Psalms, Um, but very few of them uh, have what we would call an inscription, which would be this 90th Psalm does, a prayer of Moses, the man of God, uh, as with the Psalms up to this point, the rest of them, we don't have an inscription, and the same is same goes with this one. Uh, nothing to tell us who the writer of this psalm might be. But we do know that it is a call to worship the Lord. One thing we do see, though, is in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7, the writer to the Hebrews writes this. Again, he, being God, designates a certain day saying in David, today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, 
If you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So the writer of the Hebrews quotes from this particular psalm and speaks of the fact that it is a saying in David. So it's very reasonable to assume that, well, we, we should take it from the Holy Spirit through the writer to the, to the Hebrews that this psalm was written by David. There are some who would say that, that uh, the writer of the Hebrews, when he says saying in David, that that's a reference to all of the psalms because most of them are written by David. But I, I, I think because it's a direct quote from this psalm, I think we need to take it uh, that, of course, uh, that uh, David did, of course, write this 95th psalm, a psalm of worship. Um, we're going to divide this psalm into uh, three sections, basically Psalms 1 through 5, which is an invitation to worship, along with some reasons to do so, with some reasons to worship the Lord. Uh, we're going to look at verse 6 and the first part of 7, uh, uh, and this is basically a repetition in the sense of a, a further invitation with reasons to worship the Lord. And then the last part of 7, verse through the end of the psalm, uh, verse 11, we see a warning that comes to us. So a warning which um, uh, uh, some believe that that last part really doesn't fit in with the rest of the psalm. There is an abrupt change, granted, there, there, there truly is, but we'll talk about that when we get to that part of the psalm here this evening. The first five verses bringing to us a call to worship God, an invitation to worship God. Oh, come, we see in verse 1. Let's look at verse 1 and 2 again. Let's read those two verses again. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. An invitation to worship. We're, we're invited specifically to sing, as we see in this first verse. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. The second verse let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. So we are invited to sing, and we are invited to shout joyfully to the Lord, to Yahweh, and to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 100, verse 1 says, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you land. Now, a, a joyful shout to God is very appropriate in praising him. You know, and there are, you know, some churches that can be very loud in their praise to God. It's not necessarily inappropriate to do so, but it can become inappropriate. Yet, we, we see here that we are to shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Notice it doesn't even say sing joyfully it says shout joyfully you know and, and, and so having a joyful shout in church once in a while might be just fine you know we, we generally find that in Pentecostal church uh, circles generally speaking and that can turn some people off but 
Here we see, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. So, uh, you know, even even during the course of the teaching, a a, a nice hearty amen is not a bad thing. Uh, In fact, um, I kind of enjoy that as as a teacher. If I say something somebody agrees with and we shout amen, it gives me some encouragement, actually. You know, because, well, that hit somebody's heart. That's cool. You know, you know what I mean? It, 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 really, it really does. And, and certainly during our time of worship and praise to the Lord, we ought to, to, to be doing some joyful singing. You know, and quite honestly, isn't it true that sometimes, depending on who's singing, it can sound just like a shout? Instead of singing a melody or in harmony with others, it's just a shout. But, you know, in another place in the Psalms, we're, we're, we're told, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And so, you know, noises are fine, shouts are fine, as long as they're joyful. Amen? Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're to do that. But we are to sing, we are to shout joyfully to God himself, to Yahweh, to the rock of our salvation, and and we see that we are to shout joyfully to him in verse 2 as well. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. We are to shout joyfully with thanksgiving. We are to come before his presence with thanksgiving. That that has to be, that's a very crucial element in our praise and our worship to God, having a heart of thanksgiving. Thankful to him for what he's done for us. Now, let me ask you guys a question real quick. I mean, you don't have to answer, but uh, you, you may shout out yes if it's the case. But has God done anything for you? Of course he has. Of course he has. You know, and whatever he's done, it is very appropriate to give thanks to him. Like we need to be a thankful people. In, in our world today, our, our world is so messed up, so, so goofed up, you know. We, um, in our own country, um, a number of decades ago, we, we still were in a place where we, um, you know, like four or five decades ago, going back to the 70s, uh, the, the, even the 80, the 70s and 80s, much less the 50s and 60s, the 70s and 80s, you know, we... We, we still were a nation that recognized God, you know, and we've been moving further and further and further away from that. And obviously the world and other nations who worship other gods primarily, you know, whether it's Buddhism or, or Islam or whatever it may be, you know, um, of, of course we understand that. And we as America being the melting pot, we, we welcome others from other cultures. But we have seen take place in our own culture exactly what God warned the Israelites against in terms of uh, joining with the, the, the uh, people of other nations who worship foreign gods. You know, don't, don't marry, don't give your sons or your daughters to marry them. But they did, and then the mixed worship began to take place, and, and that's when Israel got, got really messed up. And... Our nation is getting messed up as well and for that same reason. So I, 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 I think that as we see that, a part of what is missing 
is hearts of thanksgiving within our culture, and it certainly can take place within our church as well. The missing thing of, of, of giving our thanks to God and being people who just look at the world and experience what the world gives to us, which is really a, a lot of pain and a lot of heartache, and we can complain. We can gripe. We can, we can talk about those things rather than talking about the good things that God has done. You know, um, I think one thing that is very important for us as, as believers to always remind ourselves of, to allow the Holy Spirit to remind us, just to be aware of the fact that our God is sovereign. And in his sovereignty, he has brought, some people would say he has brought, or at the very least, he has allowed difficulties to take place in our lives. And as we complain and as we gripe about things that, that, are, that are taking place, you know, we're not only going directly against Scripture, which as Paul writes in Philippians, do all things without, without uh, complaining. It's we, we are really complaining against God. Because he's sovereign and brought that to us. We're complaining against him and making an accusation against him as we make the complaint, as we, 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 uh, uh, as, as we gripe about what's going on in our lives. So we need to be very, very careful about that. You know, one of the psalms, which is a, a, a beautiful psalm of thanksgiving, is Psalm 136. And the first three verses read this way. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. And it goes on for 36 verses, pretty much that way, each one of them ending with, for his mercy endures forever, but it always begins with this first verse, and we see second and third as well, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And then citing something that he had done, for his mercy endures forever. And so we are to give thanks. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. He always is good, regardless of the difficulties that we face, isn't he? Whatever comes against us in this world, it does not mean that God is not good. Whatever pain we may experience, it does not mean that God is not good. He is good. So this invitation to worship God, to sing to him, to shout joyfully to him. Uh, he, he is give, we see two different names for him here in this first verse. Uh, Yahweh, of course, and then the rock of our salvation. We're to shout joyfully to him. And then in verses 3 through 5, we see some reasons that we ought to do this. Let's read those three verses. So, so we're called to come and to sing to the Lord, to worship him. And then verse 3 begins with, for the Lord is the great God. This is why we do it for the Lord. We, for the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. He is the great God and the great king above all God. Psalm 86, 8 to 10. Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. 
All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. One of the interesting things about that particular passage, as we see in verse 9, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord. Now, the nations that he has not made will not come. But are there any nations that he has not made? Of course not. That means all nations will come and worship him. People from all nations, all tongues, all tribes uh, will come and worship the Lord. And this is speaking, of course, specifically of uh, Jesus himself being worshipped in Jerusalem uh, during his millennial reign. During that time, that is definitely going to take place. But even those nations whom he has made, who actually uh, worship some other god, I mentioned a couple earlier, you know, uh, Buddha, uh, Islam, and all the, the in terms of religions, uh, turning their back on the god who made them, but they soon, at some point in time, will glorify the name of the Lord. But he is the great God, the great king above all gods. We see that, verse 10, you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. And then Psalm 97, which we will be looking at in, in just a, a couple weeks. Verse 9, for you, Lord, are most high above all the earth, you are exalted far above all gods. We worship him, we exalt him because of who he is, right? You, he is the most high above all the earth. Uh, consistent with what we see here in verse 3. The Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. When Isaiah... In Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to look at the first five verses here in just a moment. But in those verses, we, we see that Isaiah sees the Lord in heaven. Let's go ahead and read those first five verses of this sixth chapter in Isaiah. Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face, with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Beautiful passage there in in Isaiah 6, in this chapter, the verses immediately following this, 
we see basically Isaiah receiving his commission as a prophet. As he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, the following verse, verses speak about how an angel brings a hot coal on a tongue to, to cleanse his mouth, to cleanse his lips so that he can speak for the Lord. And so as, as Isaiah writes here, he sees the Lord in all of his glory in, in heaven seated on the throne. Uh, the train of the robe filled the temple in which he was. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when Isaiah catches, catches sight in this vision of God and who he is, there's only one response that he can have. He says there, woe was me for I'm undone. It's another way of saying, I am just falling apart here. I am undone. Seeing God in his glory. Now, it's hard for us to relate to this in terms of what Isaiah saw. He, he writes it here. And we have some descriptions. I mean, we, we, we go to the book of Revelation. We see some very colorful descriptions of what heaven's like and the throne of God and various colors and so forth. But um, just the reality of his holiness and his righteousness, his majesty, the, the glory of his person. You know, we cannot even imagine today what it's going to be like. We can't imagine what he is like, really, other than reading the descriptions. And, you, you know, I, I, I believe this, that, you know, God gave us his word. He gave us his word for us to understand, to read, and to know. And he does give us some things that kind of begin to intrude on, on, on the glory and the wonder and the majesty of his person, who he is. But they don't fully give it to us because, quite frankly, we wouldn't understand it anyway. We just can't understand it. Our, our minds are too small to understand the majesty and the greatness, the, the, the wonder, uh, the, the glory, the, the holiness of God. We, we, we can't even begin to understand that. But when we begin to see some glimpses of it, we respond like, like Isaiah did. We fall apart. Anyone here ever wept before God? course you know when when he shows up when he reveals himself and when when, when we catch that glimpse of of, of of who he is this is what we do it, 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 it brings to mind passage in the book of Luke I believe it's in the fifth chapter when um, Jesus had borrowed uh, 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 Peter's boat um, did uh, did some preaching, and he said, push the boat out further, and you'll catch some fish. And, and Peter said, oh, you know, Lord, there are no fish out there. We were out there all morning. There's nothing out there. And, but he said, but at your word, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll put out a net. Actually, the Lord said, put your nets out, and he only put one out. But when those fish jumped into that net and broke the net, 
You see, Peter understood that this wasn't just an itinerant preacher before him. He understood that this is the God of all creation and that he has authority over the fish. They were not there. Peter, as an experienced fisherman, he knew there were no fish there. He understood. He knew that lake. This was just one of those days the fish were not there. Suddenly, they were. And Peter understood. And Peter bowed before Jesus. The word tells us that he bowed before, knee, before Jesus' knee and said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Notice something else that we see here in these verses, both Isaiah 6 and, and in Luke, as I was sharing there. Um, something that is common between Isaiah and Peter. In standing before the righteousness and the holiness of Creator God and His majesty, it brought them to a place of confession. I've come undone for I am a for, for, for my uh, lips, I'm a man of unclean lips. Peter said, I'm a sinful man, O oh God. Depart from me. You know, and that's something that should take place with us. When we see his glory and his holiness, we see our incredible lack of both. And so, he's worthy to be praised. We're to bow down and worship him. Another passage out of Jeremiah chapter 10, a little bit longer, but a, a beautiful passage written by the prophet Jeremiah. Verses 10 through 16, consistent with this idea that, that God that, that, that Yahweh is the great God and the great king above all gods. Jeremiah writes, but the Lord is the true God, or Yahweh is the true God. He is a living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth will tremble, and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom and has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. Let's stop there for a minute. Stretching out the heavens at his discretion. And, 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 and now with all the technology that, we, that we, technology that we have, sending satellites out into the uh, out into space and, and the various telescopes that we have the Hubble telescope and, and others I mean sending uh, spacecraft to, to to go around not only the moon but to, to other planets as well you know um, it's it's crazy the thing that we're able to do but we see so much more than Jeremiah could have understood when he wrote this some 2700 years ago you know, it, it's something that should amaze us when we see these words that God has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. 
What an amazing God we serve. When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. Everyone is dull-hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image. For his molded image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the maker of all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. So these are just a few passages that, that speak and confirm what David wrote here in this third verse, for the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. One last one I want to look at, which I believe is just a tremendous blessing to see uh, considering the context of it all. Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. Nebuchadnezzar is speaking. And he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Boy, he found that out, didn't he? He found that out. I love that because Nebuchadnezzar is the one who, just, just prior to this, spoke to the three friends of, of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they wouldn't bow to the worship that he, that he created, or that he had built for them to, to bow before. He said, who's going to... Who's going to Save you out of my hands. No one can. He saw differently, didn't he? And then the Lord put him out to pasture. You know, sent him out to the fields and for a period of seven years. <laughs> and, and he, um, I mean, talk about being humiliated. I mean, he was like an animal out there. The, the long hair and the, the I mean, the, the claws and all that. All that. I mean, People must have thought they'd have gone crazy. And according to the world definition, that's probably what, 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 what we would say too. But, it was just for a time, the Lord was humbling him so that Nebuchadnezzar would say what he says right here in this verse. That he praises, extols, and honors the king of heaven. I, I, I just love this verse and actually the verses before it, as Nebuchadnezzar kind of talks a little bit about his experience, but he winds up praising, extolling, and honoring the king of heaven, the God of the Jews. A.W. Tozer writes this. By the way, I, I am um, I'm, I'm going through a devotion that uh, is a devotion uh, that is compiled uh, by... Uh, uh, made, made up of a bunch of uh, Tozer writings and so forth. And each month has a particular month. It's, it's written specifically for uh, Christian leaders. But uh, each month has a particular theme. And the theme for June is worship. And as we're here in this particular psalm, I thought it fitting to read something from uh, that um, devotion. And Tozer wrote this. 
when we come into this sweet relationship with what the Lord, of course, is speaking of, look at this. We are beginning to learn astonished reverence, breathless adoration, awesome fascination, lofty admiration of the attributes of God and something of the breathless silence that we know when God is near. You may have never realized it before, but all of those elements in our perception and consciousness of the divine presence add up to what the Bible calls the fear of God. The fear of God is that astonished reverence of which the great Faber wrote. I would say that it may grade anywhere from its basic element, the terror of the guilty soul before a holy God, to the fascinated rapture of the worshiping saint. There are very few unqualified things in our lives, but I believe that the reverential fear of God mixed with love and fascination and astonishment and admiration and devotion is the most enjoyable state and the most purifying emotion the human soul can know. The depths of the sea. Um, I think I copied that last part mistakenly. The emotion that the soul can know. You know, um, as we see what Tozer wrote there, and the idea of this reverential fear, I love this, mixed with love and fascination and astonishment and admiration and devotion. All these things are part of our worship of God. You know, things that you know, we don't commonly think of, but one of the things that, that, that Tozer hits on also in another portions of his devotion is, is the need for us, and, and he writes of this in his own lifetime. He, he, uh, he went home to be with the Lord back in 1963. So 60 years ago now, he's been with the Lord. And he writes these things and speaks about how busy everything is in his time. All the things that are going around him and, and the world is so busy and people can't slow down enough to actually spend time with God and we need to stop, we need to slow down, we need to take time with God which, which, which had already at that time become something that, that in the church was very uncommon. Even less so today. I mean what would he say if he saw what's going on around us today? in terms of the busyness of life and so forth, right? But guys, something that we've got to understand, this whole idea of worshiping God, sitting before him, being still before him, and taking the time to do that, just withdrawing from the busyness of life. Guys, we've got to understand that the God of this age has designed our world to keep us from doing that. He's designed things around us so that we would not take time with God. So that we won't be still and know that he's God. He just wants to keep us busy. Something going on all the time. And even within churches, if you're busy, that's not necessarily a good thing. It, it's, it's great to have a lot of ministry going on, but is it, is it, just, busy, is it just busyness? Or is it truly ministry? You know what I mean? I mean, we have to be careful about these things. We have to be careful. Because I think it's too easy 
just to want to see the church doing a lot of things, just get busy with things that perhaps the Lord didn't direct us to do. Because even those who are in leadership aren't taking time to be still with God and hearing from him. And just doing what we've always done and doing what other churches do and whatever might attract people. You know, I mean, we've got to be so, so careful. So this idea of worshiping God, taking this this, this time, but again, looking at what Tozer had to say in the very, very first sentence when he speaks about learning astonished reverence, breathless adoration, awesome fascination, lofty admiration of the attributes of God. And all of this pointing, these passages of Scripture, what Tozer wrote, all of it pointing to the reality of the fact that we worship God not so much for what He does, but for who He is. We thank Him and praise Him for what He does, certainly, and that's a part of worship, it is. But the, the, the height of the purity of what worship is, is bowing before Him, being amazed at who he is, admiring him, uh, uh, being astonished. You know, I mean, all, all these things, I, I love these words that Tozer uses. Um, those are things that ought to be taking place. Now, going on here in verse 4, in his hand are the deep places of the earth. That's where I messed up with my notes. I got that confused there. The, the depths of the seas, the heights of the hills, and so forth, all belong to God. In his hand are the deep places of the earth, the heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. There's a statement there that is important. The sea is his, for he made it. So we see the reality that, that creation, God as creator of all things, tells us that all things belong to him. Every human being who will not bow before him still belongs to God. Because he made us. He made us. He created us. And that's just a, 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 a basic biblical truth. But here in this passage, we, we, we see the reality of that being stated. And his hands formed the dry land. And so we, we, we see the reality of God being creator, having ownership, making him worthy of being worshipped. Of course, Psalm 50, verses 10 and 11, a passage that is familiar to us. For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. And the context there speaks about uh, offering him sacrifices, animal sacrifices. You know, it's not like he needs them, <laughs> right? Because he has... Uh, everything that we see around us belongs to him anyway. You know, just, an, just an act of our own devotion to him and love for him. Moving on to verse 6 and the first portion, the first three lines of verse 7. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. 
further invitation we see in verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So three things we are invited to do here. O come, let us worship, let us bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, Yahweh, our maker. Other places in the scriptures we have invitations. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, we see the Lord speaking through Hosea, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. Let us return to the Lord. And Hosea is a wonderful book inviting um, lost souls to return to him, backsliders to return, lost Israel to return. And that's something that obviously God wants in every one of us to come to him. Revelation twenty two seventeen, And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. So an invitation to come and partake of the water of life that Jesus offers. But notice that it is the spirit and the bride that say, come. Who's the bride there? That's us, the church, the bride of Christ. Come. We ought to be making that offer to people around us. Come and drink freely of the water of life that Jesus brings, that he, off that he offers. You know, and, and we need to we need to term it in the right way, in a way that is that that uh, uh, will not immediately shut people's ears. You know, uh, as they understand we may be quoting scripture or, or so forth, but making that inv invitation to to know and to experience what we know and we are experiencing the life that God has to offer us. And the third one I want to quote is from the New Testament, a familiar passage, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The invitation to come to Jesus to find rest. All you who labor and are heavy laden, take his yoke because it's easy and it is light. So these invitations are given for us to come to the Lord, to come to Jesus, to receive from him healing, to receive from him life, to receive from him rest for the weary soul. Psalm 95 is, is an invitation to come to worship him, to come to worship him. That's what Psalm 95 is all about. Again, from Tozer, and, and I, I, I hit on the idea just a few moments ago, the idea that... that um, as we consider what the Lord has done for us, the good things he's done, the, 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 the blessings that he's poured out upon us, it is very appropriate to bring thankfulness to God. And, he's, and he cites here 
uh, speaking, he says, It is good and right to render unto God thanksgiving for all his mercies to us. So then he asks the question, but, but God's admirers, where are they? The simple truth is that worship is elementary until it begins to take on the quality of admiration. Just as long as the worshiper is engrossed with himself and his good fortune, he's a babe. We begin to grow up when our worship passes from thanksgiving to admiration. As our hearts rise to God in lofty esteem for that which he is, I am that I am, Exodus 3.14, we begin to share a little of the selfless pleasure which is the portion of the blessed in heaven. Because he is our portion, isn't he? He's called the portion of Israel, as we read earlier. This is amazing. Guys, as we begin to see God for who he is and worship him because of it, and not simply because of what he's done for us, right? Thanking him, yes. But worshiping him, you know, guys, honestly, I mean, we, we see in Romans 5.8, Paul writing that God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? His love is shown through that act of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. We don't need to see anything else. We don't need to experience his love in any other way to know that he loves us because that demonstrates his love for us, right? Isn't that what that verse tells us? And yet when things go wrong, we can so easily begin to think, God, don't you love me anymore? I mean, we don't, we, we don't have to have a single thing in our life go right in terms of what we think is right in the sense of, you know, bringing pleasure or, or, or bringing ease or, or whatever it may be. But... God continues to bless us. He's shown that he loves us. And so we ought to worship and bow, and bow down to him. In that, yes, he's given us so much. But even if he doesn't, he's worthy of it simply because of who he is and all of his goodness and his grace and his mercy the love that he's shown, his compassion, his, his, his majesty, his holiness, his righteousness, his greatness. Worship and bow down. And so, as we read this sixth verse, this invitation to worship him, the word here, here in the sixth verse is, let us worship and bow down. Now, the word translated as worship here, shakah, that, that is a word in the Hebrew that can be translated as bow down also. Because the idea of worship is bowing down before God, bow, bowing down before a deity. In fact, that word basically gives the sense that uh, it is to worship conceived of as bowing down to a deity. 
The next word that's translated as bow down is a different word, and it gives the sense of to get into a prostrate position as in submission, homage, humility, worship, or grief, among other things. So bowing down here in this verse basically means of that bowing down in physical position, while the other word, worship and bow down, is bowing down the heart before God. That, that's, that's the difference between those two words. But we are invited to worship, to bow down, to kneel before Yahweh, our maker. And so David, in writing this, is acknowledging that, that God is his creator, our creator. And we see in verse 7, there are a few reasons given that we ought to do this, that we ought to come and worship and bow down before God. For he's our God, simply because he's our God. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to bow down and worship God. He's God and we're not. You know, he's God and we're his creation. You know, he is Lord and we are his servants. He's our father. We're his children. You know, it, it it's just simply something that ought to be done. We need to bow down to God simply because he's our God. Yahweh is our God. Jesus is our God. Uh, the Holy Spirit is our God as well, right? For he's our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He's God, and, and we're, we're the people of his pasture. We're, we're the, the, the sheep of his hand. It speaks to the fact that not only is he our God, but he is also our shepherd. That's what these words are telling us. He cares for us. He, 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 he gives us food and drink. He watches over us. He protects us. He makes sure that we're safe. And we can read the 23rd Psalm, you know, and, and get the picture of what the, 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 the shepherd does for the sheep. I, I mentioned a few things. Uh, not as colorfully as, as David does in the 23rd Psalm. But, you know, th this is what, what we do because he does take care of us. And so we honor him, we worship him, we bow down before him. And now as we get to the latter portion of the psalm, we, we, we see the warning that is, that is given. Let's read through verse 11. The end of verse 7 through verse 11. Today... If you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. As in the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their heart and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This last portion is a warning to not harden our hearts. Now, David wrote this for the Israelites, for his fellow Jews. But we see that in the New Testament, this passage is quoted, again, by the writer to the Hebrews, and tells us that this passage is meant for us as well. This warning to not 
harden our hearts. You know, some critics, as I mentioned earlier, uh, will say that, that um, you know, these two, these, the first and last part of this psalm just don't go together. They must be two different psalms that accidentally got joined together. And, and yet, this isn't the only place in the scriptures where that kind of thing takes place. If you look at Romans chapter 11, written, of course, by the Apostle Paul, verses 19 to 22, he wrote, You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but towards you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And, and, and the point to be seen here is that 22nd verse. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. All in one place, the goodness of God, the severity of God. In Psalm 95, worship God, be warned. You know, it, 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 there's a stark contrast, but the contrast is designed by God to get our attention. And yes, we're called to worship the Lord, but let's be warned because hardening of hearts is something that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. Um, in Hebrews, we do see that the writer quotes this 95th Psalm after writing that Jesus was faithful to his Father and worthy of more glory than Moses. And then he writes in verses 7 to 19 in Hebrews 3, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then the writer goes on and says this. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who? Having heard, rebelled. Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? And now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And for the Christian today, there is a rest for us to enter in. God has a rest for us. Come unto me, and I will give you rest, Jesus said. He wants us to rest. 
But unbelief will keep us from resting. Unbelief in the sense of, well, you know, that promise just obviously is not for me. You may be experiencing it, but it's not for me. You know, that kind of a thing. Uh, If you think it's not for you, that's unbelief. That's unbelief. I want you to notice something here as we close looking at these uh, verses 16 through 19. Those who harden their hearts. Verse 16, they rebelled. Verse 17, they sinned. Verse 18, they did not obey. And verse 19, they had unbelief. They did not believe. Essentially, the hardened heart is a heart of unbelief that leads to rebellion, to sin, and disobedience that we see here in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 3. Now, as we see that, I want to refer to something that Matthew Henry wrote. He wrote this. The more experience we have had of the power and goodness of God, the greater is our sin if we distrust him. What? To tempt him in the wilderness when we live upon him? This is as ungrateful as it is absurd and unreasonable. Hardness of heart is at the bottom of all our distrust of God and quarrels with him. That is a hard heart which receives not the impressions of divine discoveries and conforms not to the intentions of the divine will, which will not melt, which will not bend. A heart of clay as opposed to a heart of stone. If we want to make sure that we stay away from hardness of heart, guys, we've, not, we've got to keep our nose in this book. If hardness of heart truly is simply a heart of unbelief, you remember what Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Let's make sure that we stay in the word of God. Let's keep reading and hearing what it is that he has to say. So that when the tempter comes and says, has God really said? We'll know. And we'll know the right context of it. He even came to Jesus and gave him scripture. Taking it out of scripture, of course, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, right? Remember? But Jesus always had a scripture to come back to, to come back with. This is our defense. This is our our, our, our our rock to stand on. It truly is the word of God. We've got to keep our nose in this word. We've got to fill our hearts and our minds with the word of God. And as we do so, we'll be protected from having a heart of unbelief or hardness of heart as the psalmist writes. And Father, I pray that you'll help us to do so. Might we commit ourselves? Might we recommit ourselves this night to be steadfast in your word? 
Lord, if there's anyone here tonight who perhaps has gotten away from a, a, a regular intake of your word into their hearts, Lord, would you, Lord, just speak to their hearts and might they even tonight just recommit to you. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Thank you for your word that you've given to us. Thank you for the, for the life that we find here. We recall that Jesus told the Jews that, 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 that they thought that it was in the word of God that they found life. But he said, they speak of me. We find you, Lord Jesus, in every page in the Bible. And so, Lord, might we come to you? Might, might we worship you? Might we bow before you? Might we marvel at the reality of who you are? Knowing that the things that you've done, the wonderful things, the graces, the, 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 the blessings, the, the joys that you've given to us all stem from who you are. So we bow before you. We worship you tonight. Be honored. Be glorified in us, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together, guys. Frank and Leto, thank you for coming out to lead us in worship tonight. They're going to lead us in one last song. I pray that we truly will worship before the Lord, that we truly will bow down before him as we sing. God bless you guys.